called for volunteers Then I got my gun First Spaniard I saw coming I shot him on the run It was all about that battleship of Maine Hello everyone and welcome to the third instalment of the Energy of Empire series. In this episode we're going to look at the Spanish-American War and the 1898 invasion of Cuba during the Republican presidency of William McKinley. In the last episode, I presented the previous president, Grover Cleveland, as an anti-imperialist. Cleveland was so outraged at American forces overthrowing the Hawaiian monarchy that he went as far as bluffing an invasion to restore Queen Lilikalani. That's all true, but not quite the whole story. Unfortunately, it presents an altogether too rosy picture of Cleveland's anti-imperialism. In fact, it can be said that his presidency was crucial to America's embrace of overseas empire. Grover Cleveland succeeded Benjamin Harrison in 1893 for his second term as president. He remains the only man to have held the office non-consecutively, being both the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. If Donald Trump is re-elected in 2024, this will no longer be true. Cleveland was a Democrat, and his first term marked the end of a 20-year consistent run by the Republican Party. The historian Murray Rothbard informs us that Wall Street in general, and the House of Morgan in particular, held substantial influence in Cleveland's administration. This was a time when bankers were extolling the benefits of wrestling South American markets away from European powers, and Cleveland was willing to oblige them. Here are some examples taken from Rothbard's work. In 1894, the United States Navy broke a blockade of Rio de Janeiro by a British-backed rebellion aiming to restore the Brazilian monarchy. To ensure that the rebellion was broken, the US Navy stationed warships in Rio Harbour for several months. During the same period, the US dispatched marines into Nicaragua to oust the British, displace the Mosquito Indians, and pressure the government to proceed with a planned canal connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. We'll cover this story more substantially later. A US warship was dispatched from Santo Domingo, now the Dominican Republic, to protect New York banking investments from French calls for reparations after a French citizen was murdered there. In 1895, the US nearly went to war with Great Britain over a territorial dispute between Venezuela and British Guyana. The boundary dispute had been raging for years, but Venezuela shrewdly attracted American investment by granting concessions to Americans in gold fields in the disputed area. Britain ultimately yielded due to its emerging problems in South Africa. Absent that, there really could have been a war just 20 years before the two countries were allied against Germany. It's also in the Cleveland administration that we find the origins of America's invasion of Cuba. Spain had occupied Cuba for hundreds of years. The year 1895 brought the latest in a long line of rebellions against Spanish rule. The US initially responded by supporting a modified rule that allowed for some Cuban autonomy to pacify their desires for independence. They pursued this route as there were substantial American commercial interests in Cuba, mostly agricultural and in railways. These totaled around a half a billion dollars worth in today's money. Cuban rebels were talking about that most dreaded of things, land redistribution. Cleveland's imperialism was limited to supporting commercial interests, so this solution suited him fine. Spanish rule was acceptable, Cuban independence was not. 
I've seen different opinions from different historians as to whether Cuban rebels were right on the verge of expelling the Spanish forces, or whether this was just the latest in a long line of failures to do so. What does seem certain, however, is that Americans with commercial interests in Cuba came to believe the game was up for Spain. They started advocating for a change in policy. This commercial necessity met with a rising tide of jingoism that sought imperial conquest and war for little more than war's sake. I'm not exaggerating here. There were a number of reasons for it. Firstly, America had gone through an economic downturn in the 1890s, giving rise to socialist and anarchist movements. It was felt a war might redirect attention away from internal problems. This includes the division felt after the so-called Civil War. External wars could be used to bind the still fragile Union together. Secondly, I mentioned the traditionally anti-imperialist Republican Party had recently lost its first election in 20 years, and it lost badly. Republicans then sought to redefine the party as being an embodiment of America's national destiny to take colonies overseas. We also have the roles of the media, with newspaper men like Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst realising that war was a damn good way to sell papers. And finally, we have the position held by an increasing number of Americans and personified in Theodore Roosevelt, that war was a manly virtue, essential to the character of a nation. Roosevelt would of course go on to be one of the more famous presidents of the United States, eventually even starring alongside Ben Stiller in the comedy film Night at the Museum. That's all to come, however. In 1898, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Now, during the Trump years, we have heard a lot of psychologists coming out with claims that the Donald was unfit to rule. America, for the first time, had a pathological president. Two issues of this. Firstly, a lot of US presidents have clearly had a higher than average degree of psychopathy, as evidenced by their easygoing attitude to murder. Secondly, anyone saying stuff like this is clearly not familiar with Theodore Roosevelt, because he was nuts. Think everything you don't like about Trump on steroids. Roosevelt was an unabashed imperialist. He was the empire unmasked. Absent the filter that imperialists today find it necessary to hide their true views behind. In this sense, he is very helpful to us in understanding the imperialist mentality. I would suggest that maybe, if you want to know what people like Dick Cheney are really thinking, you could do worse than listen to what Theodore Roosevelt was saying. Things such as, I should welcome almost any war, for I think this country needs one. Psychologist William James wrote that Roosevelt... Gushes over war is the ideal condition for human society, for the manly strenuousness which it involves. He treats peace as a condition of blubber-like and swollen ignobility, fit only for huckstering weaklings, dwelling in grey twilight and heedless of the higher life. And he wasn't exaggerating. Roosevelt was a game hunter. One of his Harvard friends wrote of him, He would above all like to go to war with someone. He wants to be killing something all the time. Mark Twain, who came to personify the anti-imperialist position as Roosevelt did the imperialist one, considered his opposite number to be clearly insane and the most formidable disaster that has befallen the country since the Civil War. In turn, Roosevelt said he would like to skin Mark Twain alive and considered anti-imperialists to be 
futile sentimentalists of the international arbitration type, who exhibit a flabby type of character which eats away at the great fighting features of our race. Onhong traitors. In perhaps his most revealing letter he wrote, Frankly, I do not know that I should be sorry to see a bit of a spar with Germany. The burning of New York and a few other seacoast cities will be a good object lesson in the need of an adequate system of coastal defences. Get a load of that. The burning of New York, with the massive loss of civilian life it would entail, will be a price worth paying for a lesson in coastal defences. Wow. Yet there is no doubt Roosevelt considered himself to be a patriot of the highest order. He stated that, A man who loves other countries as much as his own is quite as noxious as a man who loves other women as much as he loves his wife. How do we square this circle? How can a man love his country yet be willing to see it burn? I would suggest that the very word patriot takes on a different meaning when emanating from a man like Roosevelt's mouth. For many of us, loyalty to our country is indistinguishable from loyalty to the people of our country. They are the country. What else could it be? This is not the way ardent imperialists think. For them, the individual is an expendable unit. Their love and loyalty is for and towards an abstract concept of the nation and its glory. To subdue this imagined national interest for the well-being of individuals is sentimental rot. It is the attitude normal people only adopt when they are playing computer games, building empires of pixels. This is how I suggest Roosevelt and the imperialists see the world. They are the game players. This is the rebuttal to that sense we all have of, well, they just wouldn't do such a thing when confronting state crimes. They do not think like us. Their fundamental values are not the same. The most extreme manifestation of this mentality, coupled with an ability to manifest it, is found in people like Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong. Mao did not fear the loss of 200 million Chinese lives a nuclear war with the United States would bring, because China had plenty of people and could produce more. To him, it was simply a logistics issue. I would contend that imperialists are deluded in thinking they pursue an imaginary sense of national glory. Abstract concepts like a nation cannot experience glory or anything else. It is only individuals who do. Imperialists seek to satisfy their own individual glory at the expense of others and simply use the concept of a nation to justify this. Anyway, back to Cuba. The conflict raging there provided the imperialists with the expansionist war they were seeking. The newspapers whipped up a frenzy with stories of Spanish forces committing atrocities. Two things seem to be true about this. The Spanish occupation was brutal involving sapping support for the rebels by relocating the civilian population into concentration camps where there was mass hunger and disease. This seems not incomparable to what the United States government had recently done to the Native Americans, placing them on reservations, and highly comparable to what the British were doing to the South African Boer around the same time. It is also the case that many journalists found it easier to stay home and fabricate stories of atrocities rather than venture into a war zone to report. Stories of Catholic priests being roasted alive, or Cubans being fed to sharks. I would suggest searching for Spanish-American War propaganda, as the images are incredible and prefigure what's coming for the Germans 20 years later. The media knew how to play on the male instinct to protect women, 
with headlines about refined young women stripped and searched by brutal Spaniards who were presented as subhuman apes. This tried and true tactic had been rolled out again and again. Recently, stories of Gaddafi supplying his troops with Viagra have been used to justify the bombing of Libya back into slave markets. And so this was the first deployment of the doctrine that would come to be known as Responsibility to Protect, one of the Empire's major tools. It has two effects. The first is to inspire general support for a war and to encourage lots of young fighting men to sign up. The second is to perform an end run around an anti-war movement. The same people who are sufficiently moral to oppose wars of conquest will be open to a war for protection. Indeed, their logic seems to demand it of them. The tactic worked on both counts. After the war began, Mark Twain, who would go on to become an arch-anti-imperialist, said, This is the worthiest war that has ever been fought. It is a worthy thing to fight for one's freedom. It is another sight finer to fight for another man's. And I think this is the first time this has been done. Twain was momentarily convinced the United States had escaped the energy of empire. William McKinley dispatched the warship Maine to Havana Harbour. It arrived on January 25th, 1898. This was a clear provocation, an invitation for something to go wrong. And go wrong, something did. On February 15th, the Maine exploded, killing 268 men. The so-called yellow press didn't wait for any investigation, instantly blaming either a mine or torpedo. They were later supported by a naval investigation. The press coined the rhyme, Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. Other experts said that neither mine nor torpedo could inflict that level of damage, and the most likely cause was munitions being set off by an adjacent coal bunker, a design flaw on this ship. Later investigations during the 20th century seemed to have confirmed this. Media Baron William Randolph Hearst referred to the sinking of the Maine as a great thing. Prior to the destruction, he also rather cryptically said, there may be an explosion any day in Cuba which would settle a great many things. If it was an accident, it was one of the most amazingly consequential accidents in all history, to the point of being hard to believe. I'm entirely open to the possibility of foul play. Not by Spain, who had everything to lose, but by American or Cuban forces, or some combination of the two. There is, however, no proof of this. But this incident does set up something of an archetypal pattern for how America goes to war. An imperial agenda is in the air with no way to get the public sufficiently on board. Then, out of nowhere, an incident happens. A dramatic, traumatising event which incites red-blooded Americans and silences critics. The media provides a narrative at impossible speed and the government provides a fraudulent investigation. We are left to marvel at yet another amazing coincidence and wonder, how do they keep arising? See Pearl Harbour, the Gulf of Tonkin for Vietnam, and 9-11 as examples. The sinking of the Maine didn't spark a war straight away. President McKinley, unlike the younger generation of imperialists, had seen massive loss of life during the Civil War. He seemed to truly desire a diplomatic solution where Spain would withdraw from Cuba. Either because of Spain's intransigency or continued reports of atrocities, he ultimately yielded to the jingoists. 
Imperialist Senator Henry Cabot Lodge proposed a Senate resolution declaring that if Spain did not withdraw from Cuba, the United States would declare war. This passed, but with an amendment that the US would not seek to colonize Cuba after the war. The Teller Amendment stated, The United States hereby disclaims any disposition or intention to exercise sovereignty, jurisdiction, or control over said island except for the pacification thereof, and asserts its determination, when that is accomplished, to leave the government and control off the island to its people. And so on the 24th of April 1898, the United States and Spain went to war. There was no need for the US to enact conscription, as it would do in later wars, spurred on by a belief that Spain had murdered young Americans on the main, hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million young men volunteered. Not wanting to miss out, Theodore Roosevelt resigned from his post as Assistant Secretary of the Navy to raise and lead a fighting unit. We'll talk more about this when we look at his rise to the presidency in a couple of episodes' time. After Cuban rebels cleared the beaches, the US Army performed its first amphibious landing. With regard to the war being an effort to bind North and South together, McKinley appointed elderly ex-Confederate generals alongside Unionists to lead the campaign. 385 Americans died in combat, but many times this succumbed to disease, making the land campaign ineffective. The war was entirely won at sea, with the modern US Navy smashing the decrepit Spanish fleet in both Havana and Manila harbours. In one of those moments that makes you wonder if you're living in a movie, the last Spanish ship to be sunk was named the Columbus. Its sinking signified the end of Spanish presence in the New World, just over 400 years after Columbus himself initiated that presence. Hostilities came to an end in August, and through peace negotiations, the United States gained control of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. Secretary of State John Hay declared it had been a splendid little war. The imperialists now moved to disavow the Teller Amendment and keep possession of Cuba. Whilst the amendment succeeded in preventing full annexation, such agreements are always fudgeable, and Cuba became a protectorate run for American business interests. There was much development in Cuba after this, but it came at the cost of losing control of much of their land and natural resources. A period of military government lasted until 1902, after which Cuba gained a pseudo-independence with the establishment of a civilian government supporting a land-owning elite. Cuba was forbidden from entering into any treaties with foreign governments or allowing them to control any portion of the island. The US also established a de facto perpetual lease on the now infamous Guantanamo Bay, and reserved the right to intervene in the country at any time. The US Army did re-enter Cuba three times over the following 15 years, to protect American business interests when the government broke down. This was often at the request of the elite in the Cuban government, who on one occasion, and with US support, killed up to 6,000 Afro-Cuban veterans after banning their political movement. In 1933, there was what was known as the Sergeant's Revolt, leading to Cuba being taken over by a coalition of activists, students, middle-class intellectuals, and disgruntled lower-rank soldiers. The provisional government granted women the right to vote, decreed an eight-hour working day, declared a minimum wage, and promised peasants legal titles to their lands. 
This first truly independent Cuban government lasted just 100 days before being overthrown by Fulgencio Batista, with support from the United States. Batista had been one of the sergeants plotting the initial revolution, then proceeded to promote himself to head of the whole army. To cut a long story short, Batista was then in power either on or behind the throne in Cuba for the next 25 years, drawing ever closer to the United States whilst moving ever further from the Cuban people. Batista essentially enriched himself by selling the country out to foreign landowners who came to control 70% of the arable land in Cuba. He revoked the right to strike, made deals with the mafia, and awarded lucrative contracts to American corporations. The repression necessary to keep this regime in place led to torture and execution becoming common, with estimates of deaths reaching into the thousands. All of this set up the next Cuban revolution in 1959, bringing communist Fidel Castro to power and ending US control of the island anywhere outside of Guantanamo Bay. And that's a history we'll get into at a future point. The CIA made countless attempts to bump Castro off and regain the islands, all of which failed. These included working with mafia hitmen, the mob had lost their casinos in Cuba, organising a full-scale invasion, the infamous Bay of Pigs, and arranging acts of sabotage and terrorism. For good or ill, Cuba remains under the control of its Communist Party and outside of the US Empire till this day. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I've been drawing on Stephen Kinzer's books, Overthrow and The True Flag, Murray Rothbard's Wall Street and American Foreign Policy, as well as the documentary film Crucible of Empire, The Spanish-American War. Next time we'll look at the invasion and occupation of Cuba's sister island, Puerto Rico. Oh.